Well, hey, everybody. Good morning. We are now six weeks into Mark's uh, theological autobiography of Jesus, and we have made it all the way to verse 16. All right. Yeah. At this pace, we'll be done sometime in 2030. Uh, no, we're actually going to pick up the pace in a little bit, but there's a lot of things going on in these opening verses by way of introduction. This morning really isn't any different. Uh, we get introduced to one of the central themes of the gospel, which is the call to discipleship. What does it mean to be a disciple, an apprentice of Jesus? And so with that, turn to Mark chapter 1, verses 16 through 20 in your Bible, your Bible app, if you're watching online. You can hit that Bible tab, 2022 style, if you want. Uh, As we're coming to this part where Jesus has just announced the kingdom, and he is calling his first disciples. So listen carefully, for this is God's word. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and they followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in a boat with the hired men and followed him. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. And now, Almighty God, we ask, uh, Lord Jesus, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, You would speak to us from your scriptures and show us who you are so that we may know what it is to follow you in our cultural moment, half a world away from where you called your first disciples. We ask this in the confidence that you are near to us. Amen. Uh, start off with a map of first century Galilee. It was a largely agricultural area, and the Sea of Galilee was kind of like the crown jewel of that space. Uh, six miles uh, wide at its widest, 12 miles long, the place was absolutely teeming with life. And this whole area actually remains an important agricultural center uh, to Israel for this day. Uh, and Jesus, you know, kind of starts out his, his ministry there. He grew up in a town called Nazareth, just a few miles to the southwest away from the Sea of Galilee, where his father was a tecton, which is the Greek word for builder or craftsman, uh, which in Galilee, you know, sorry to, to burst the, the popular imagination bubble, probably meant building with stone. Stone was readily available, wood not so much. Maybe not so much of a carpenter. But aside from this brief episode that we have in Luke's gospel, where Jesus appears in the temple, we really don't know much about his life. We don't know much about what happened in those 30 years from all of the angels' announcements, the the wise men, the shepherds, all the stuff that we see at Christmas, until this moment. Spent 30 years in relative obscurity in a small agricultural community. So imagine this. God is on the planet for 30 years and barely anyone notices. Welcome to the mystery. 
But then all of a sudden, Jesus comes on the scene. He starts going into all the synagogues up and around the region, announcing that the season for God's reign to break into the world is here. It is upon us. What all the world has been waiting for, what everything in history has been building toward. And the very first thing he does after proclaiming this announcement is that he goes into the neighboring areas and he, he starts to call together a community, a new society, a new Israel to be the forefront of what God is doing in the world. And all that makes sense, right? I mean, if you're going to you know, remake the world, you need people to be part of the movement, right? If you're going to get people onto this, you know, ambitious project of God's shalom breaking into the world, flooding creation, beginning to reshape every aspect of it, then you're going to want to have people who will carry that message into the culture, into the world around you. And if you want that, you're going to go to the place where, you know, you've got a pulse on what's happening in the culture. You're going to go to the place where you can find, you know, the elites to kind of bring their influence into shaping the culture around them, right? That's how movements happen. That's how you get a buzz. That's what any rabbi would do. My wife, Jill, grew up in Concord, New Hampshire. Uh, it's kind of what you would imagine a, a lovely New England city to look like, uh, mixed with historical significance and this kind of, you know, cool, small-town vibe. Um, fun fact, her, her home actually backed up to a cemetery where just beyond her backyard uh, was the grave of the 14th president of the United States. And Jill tells me that she used to play on his grave all the time growing up, because that's what you do when you grow up in New Hampshire. Uh, families live there for generations. Uh, tradition runs really deep, very practical people, like the kind of people that would knit you a scarf for Christmas because they don't cancel school unless it's under 10 below uh, out there. Um, all kinds of tradition. And just outside on the edge of town is St. Paul's School which is a prestigious, one of the most prestigious uh, Ivy League kind of prep schools in the country. Alumni of this place include Nobel Prize winners, Pulitzer Prize winners, uh, congressmen and women, a, a recent United States uh, 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 Secretary of State. That's what it is, Secretary of State. Uh, this place admits fewer than 15% of the people who apply. Tuition for one year costs $62,000. Basically, it's a training ground for you know, the, the well-bred, future Ivy League-bound movers and shakers in the world, the elite of the elite. Uh, and Concord is not a big place. And so on the weekends, whenever the kids from St. Paul's would go into town and, you know, go to the movie theater or uh, go to the mall, this is the 90s when Jill was growing up, people did that. And, you know, they would, they would go out onto town, do all the things, whatever it was. The two worlds absolutely did not mix. Uh, the prep school kids would never hang out with who they called the townies. My, my wife was definitely a townie. 
Now, there, were, there was actually something kind of like that going on in first century Galilee as well. Just to the south of the Galilee region was a Roman city called Scythopolis. It was this major cultural hub. It was a military city. It boasted a temple, a university, all of that. If there was any culture to be found, any chance of finding the elites, that is the place you would go if you lived in Galilee. So does Jesus go there to find his disciples? Nope. He goes to the northern part of the Sea of Galilee, which is this kind of hotbed of religious fervor. If, if Israel had a Bible belt or a, a Torah belt or whatever, that, that's what it would be. The, the leading rabbis of the day, Shammai and Hillel, they had major influence there. And Jesus goes to this place where all of the cities are named after the fishing industry. Um, Mary Magdalene, incidentally, is named after the town of Magdala, which means fish tower. I have absolutely no idea what a fish tower is. But, you know, you see Mary Magdalene out on the street, her name, literally Mary Fish Tower. I don't know if that changes your perception of who she is at all, but just a little fun fact there. And Jesus sees these guys who are out there in this, this kind of, you know, agricultural center, out doing their thing. And he says, come, follow me, which is an invitation to come, be my disciple. The, the word that gets used throughout the New Testament, be my mathetes, which means learner, student, apprentice. Uh, the Hebrew concept is talmid, apprentice yourself to me as your rabbi. Learn my way of doing things. He goes on, and I will show you how to fish for people. In other words, I will take you from being a fisherman and turn you into a great teacher. You will learn to do what it is that I do. And these guys, they, they drop their nets without hesitation and they follow him. A little way up, he sees James and John in the boat preparing their nets. They were you know, fishermen too. It was hard work. Uh, every day you'd have to haul these massive nets back into the boat, mend them if they were torn, dry them out, fold them up, and get them ready for the next day. And he tells them to drop what it is that they're doing and follow him. And then right there, they leave their father in the boat and they follow him. They leave him with the hired men. I mean, poor guy. He's like, what the, what the heck? Where are you guys going? What would cause these adult men to do this? I mean, we read this and we think it's a strange story, but I got to tell you, it's even stranger than you might think. I mean, on one level, you know, we in the, the global West, we're products of the Enlightenment. We, we tend to think that the way that we find meaning is by, you know, constructing a self, a whole cloth, apart from our family, apart from tradition, that the way to find our most authentic self is inside of us, right? Is that, that's where we find meaning. And so on the one hand, like this idea of leaving the family business behind, trying to find an identity, we kind of we get that. But for ancient societies, and in much of the world still to this day, identity is not something that you make for yourself. It's something that is handed down like a family name. 
You know who you are by the stories that you share, by by the way that those stories grab your imagination that are told in family, told in community. And we have absolutely no idea how many generations of the Zebedee family were out there fishing the waters of the Galilee. But we do know that family businesses were not just held down, handed down from generation to generation. They were sometimes handed down throughout the centuries. This could have been something going back a hundred years or more that, that James and John were, were out there, the long line of men making their way on the sea. And there are clues that the father of James and John had a pretty successful operation. He, he had a boat for one thing, but he also had hired men in that boat, which means the business was humming, which means that there was a certain amount of security and a certain amount of stability and a certain amount of responsibility. So yeah, what is it that would make these four men drop everything and follow a stranger? I mean, Jesus is calling them to to step out and do something entirely new. Imagine you're, you know, at your office at Georgia Pacific or wherever, and someone walks up to you and says, hey, follow me, be my apprentice. You know, quit your job and, you know, start out on the bottom level, come with me. And you close your laptop up and you go. Or you're in a classroom and somebody says, hey, if you really want to learn something, come with me and I'll teach you everything that I know. What you've got to realize is, and what I've come to realize is that the story makes a lot more sense if you actually understand a little bit of the background of the educational system in first century Judaism. And, and it and revolved entirely around the Old Testament, what what. Uh, what the the Hebrew language calls the Torah. It was the law, but it was more than that. It was also the the literature. It was the the way of finding meaning. It was the essence of the culture. It was everything kind of central to the lives of the people. And so if you like history and context, like, you know, this this part is for you. Uh, If not, next couple minutes uh, might be a good time to get a cup of coffee. Um, I'm not going to take a long time on it, but there's some things I think that are helpful for us to know. Uh, There were three primary sections uh, in the educational system in first century Judaism. The first level was called Beit Safar. And most boys, even some girls, would start their teaching, start their learning rather, around age six. And what they would do is they would learn the first five books of the Hebrew scriptures, the Torah, um, by memory. Uh, they would, you know, go to the synagogue, a rabbi or a scribe would teach, and it would last until about age 10. And most kids would have the entire, you know, first five books of the Hebrew scripture, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they would have that memorized. And by age 10, uh, you know, finishing up, most kids were not in school anymore. They were then apprenticing themselves. They were learning the family business. They, like James and John, were, were you know, out doing the family trade. Or, you know, if, you're, if they were a woman, they were starting, you know, to raise children around age 12, around age 13, and, you know, have a household. 
Uh, most men would get married around that age. Most women would start, you know, bearing children as soon as you could bear a child. So if you've got a kid in junior high and they, you know, are talking about how rough it is, be like, well, try having a child at age 12 or 13. Don't tell them that. Um, but you get the idea. But if you showed promise, you know, if you were, if you were really smart, you would go on to the next level called Beit Talmud, where from ages 10 to, to 14, you would memorize the rest of the Hebrew scriptures, the Psalms, the prophets. It was not uncommon for a first century Jewish boy to have the entirety of scripture memorized. It was an oral culture, no you know, uh, iPhones, no Xboxes competing for your attention. This is also where a student would start engaging in the question of, of doing theological reflection with their teacher. They would ask them questions. They would, they would show you know, that they actually knew it beyond just the simple rote memorization. They would, they would start to internalize the scriptures. Uh, this is what we see in Luke's gospel. We see Jesus at the temple at age 12. The, he's having this back and forth dialogue with the rabbis and they are blown away by what he knows. Now, by the end of this, age 14, 15, obviously, most kids, that's it. That's where you stop. You would then go on and, you know, learn the family business, start a family, all that. Or, you know, maybe you would have a seat reserved for you on the synagogue council. But the best of the best of the best, the cream of the crop, they would go on to the next level of education called Beit Midrash, where they would go to a rabbi, they would follow him around, they would get to know him, they would get to know the way that he teaches, the way that he interprets the scripture. And the rabbi would then ask this prospective student who had done well at Beit Talmud all kinds of questions about the way that they understand scripture, about the way that they interpret it. They would ask them what they thought about what other rabbis were saying about the scriptures. Because the rabbi Rabbi wants to know, do you have what it takes to be my disciple? Can you do what it is that I do? Will you actually be helpful in spreading my teachings, my way of thinking out in the world? And if the rabbi thought, you know, this, this kid is good, he loves God, obviously knows the Torah front and back, but he's not the best of the best of the best. He might say to that student, you know, you have done well. You love God. Now go and apply what you have learned out in the world. Go learn your family trade. And then he would dismiss you and that would be the end of your education. You'd be done. But if you impressed him, if the rabbi thinks that you can actually do what he does, he would say, come and follow me. And you would go and you would leave your village, you would leave your family, you would devote your life to this rabbi's set of teachings and your whole goal would be to know what it is that your rabbi knows, to know his way of interpreting scripture, his view of God, his view of the world. Not only that, you would want to be like your rabbi. You would live with him, you would follow him around, you would study the way that he eats, the way that he, he talks with people, the way that he interacts. You would study the, the vocal inflections that he has as he is teaching. You would know his mannerisms, his kind of rhetoric. You would grow your beard like his. And the whole idea is that you would be the image of your rabbi. You would bear his work out into the world. That is what it meant to be a disciple. And so here's the point. 
Peter, Andrew, James, and John were fishermen, which means they were not following another rabbi, which means they did not make the grade. They were not the best of the best of the best. They were not the elites. They were not the Ivy League bound ones. They were not the movers and shakers of the world. They were the townies. Their hands were, were stained with the smell of fish. Jesus did not go for the best and the brightest. He comes to these men, which rabbis never did. I mean, they were the respected ones. They would literally have students tripping all over themselves to get into, to be admitted to, you know, their school of thought. So Jesus could have had any choice of the elite. But he comes to these guys who didn't make the cut, and he says, you, I think you can do what I do. Come follow me, and you will become like me. And there's a cost to doing it for sure. There's security, there's stability, there's, you know, a vision of life. But these guys actually changed the world. And there's actually a cost also of non-discipleship, of missing out on the chance to become who you really are. I mean, if you had the opportunity to be more than you dared dream, and somebody saw that in you, and somebody came up to you and asked you to be part of something bigger than yourself, what would you do? Do you know what it's like to have someone believe in you like that? 20 years ago, I was teaching high school English. I, I loved it. I, I loved digging into great literature, into ideas, into stories. Uh, I loved talking about why they mattered, what they said about humanity and faith and, and virtue, uh, the big questions of life, right? Uh, big questions of meaning, and, and I loved kind of digging into that stuff with students and helping them think those things through and helping them put their ideas out on paper. I was a tough teacher. I used to always tell my students, if you don't have an idea on paper, you don't have an idea in your head. I was that guy. And, and I loved research and I loved learning. And so for me, the career path was clear. I was going to save up a bit of money for a couple of years. I was going to go to grad school and then I was going to go on to teaching at a university. And then in fall of 2001, I found myself on a plane out to Washington, D.C. This is just a couple weeks after 9-11. Only a handful of people on the airplane. Uh, Nobody was wanting to fly into D.C. And I landed at Reagan National Airport and drove out to Charlottesville, where I was interviewing for a Ph.D. program at UVA. As I was driving out to the city, I couldn't help but notice, you know, the strong military presence all over the city. Um, Humvees with machine guns and, and missile launchers trained at the sky in anticipation of another terror attack. It's crazy, crazy time. Well, the next day I'm in the interview and I'm killing it. I'm doing well. But then right there in the middle of it, we're talking about Tolstoy. I had this strong moment of clarity. This ain't it. This is not what you're supposed to be doing. Which is really inconvenient. Because that was all for the last four years I had been thinking I was going to do. 
Well, two years prior to that, I stepped into a church. First time I had been to a church in a long time. I was 20 years old, and someone followed me out afterward, my high school choir director, and said, hey, I think you can lead in ministry. And I'm thinking, right, the guy who's still, you know, figuring all this stuff out, you want me to lead in ministry? Like, how desperate are you? Then for that year while I I led the youth ministry, in the next two years while I was teaching, getting ready for grad school, a few of the elders would come up to me on Sundays and just say, hey, how's it going? Are you you still thinking about ministry? And I was like, no. (laughs) I didn't start thinking about ministry. I know what I'm going to do. It took a lot of other voices speaking the same thing to me over the next five years for finally to be able to hear Jesus' voice in the middle of it. This is what following me looks like for you, Stephen. But I gotta say, their, their, their confidence, their faith in me, it made me see myself differently. It shaped me at such a young age when I was still trying to figure out all of this stuff, uh, when my, you know, my, my thoughts of who I was were still being shaped. Uh, to have these people that I respected give me ears to hear Jesus' voice in the midst of all of my objections, in the midst of all of my doubts. Maybe you have had an experience like that. And it didn't mean for you quitting your job and going to seminary. That's not what I'm talking about. That's just what it looked like for me. For you, it might be raising a family. It might be running a business well. Some of you, it might mean a season of moving into a new part of town, of living simply, of living in intentional community, of of kind of digging in to the needs of that community. It can mean a lot of different things. Christ plays in 10,000 places, as the poet Hopkins writes, Or maybe you have had the exact opposite experience. Maybe you've been told all of your life not to get your hopes up, that you're not the best and the brightest, that you need to ratchet back your expectations a little bit. And you've had that kind of ground into you and you're thinking, yeah, sure, God can use people, but me, eh, that I'm not so sure about. But what if Jesus believes in you? What if Jesus believes it about you? What if the God who made the world, who became incarnate in Jesus, actually believes that you can be like him, that you can be part of his kingdom breaking into the world? And I don't mean that in kind of like a a self-help sort of like, go pick yourself up, God believes in you, believe in yourself sort of like way. I don't mean that. You know, do the best of the best. I mean, we can't all be the best of the best, right? But he believes it to the extent that he's willing to trust his entire message of salvation to the world, to these guys that everyone else had written off, that nobody expected anything from. And he shows up on the shore and he says to them, through the Spirit, you will do far more than you ever thought possible. I believe that you can become like your rabbi. Now come and follow me. If he's saying it of them, he is saying it of you. In fact, there's this line in John's gospel where Jesus is so confident that they can be what he is all about that he says, very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do works that I have been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. Greater things than Jesus, their rabbi, Scratch that. The savior of the world. Greater things than that. 
And yet you and I are here sitting in this room today because they dropped their nets and said, okay. Look, maybe you are in the middle of the pack. Maybe you think you're at the bottom, but wherever you find yourself, Jesus chose you and he believes that through the Holy Spirit you can be with him you can become like him and you can do the things that he did out in the world as part of his reign that's how Jesus called his first disciples that's what it means for us to be disciples today I mean we don't we don't live in the first century you know uh, of Galilee we, do, we don't live in that place we don't live in that culture so what does it mean for us well it means the exact same thing it's one definition that I find helpful. A, a disciple or apprentice is simply someone who has decided to be with another person under appropriate conditions in order to become capable of doing what that person does or to become what that person is. In other words, it is the everyday process of being with Jesus in community, doing the things that he did, taking on the practices and the rhythms of his life, letting them shape you so that you can go out and bear his likeness in the world. That's why we asked you at the beginning of this series on Mark to, to read through the gospel at least once every month. Do it slowly. You're not in a rush. But get his way of being in the world in you. And as you read, ask Jesus to show you who he is and to show you what it means to follow him. It's so important because there are so many ways that we can hijack Jesus, that we can attach an image to him, that we can make him in our image instead of him making us in his. If we're going to be with him, we need to know what he's like. And then secondly, the goal is to be shaped like our rabbi. We become like him by doing the things that he did. That's why we're so big on the spiritual practices because there are things that we see Jesus doing all the time, taking time out to pray, to, to read scripture, to worship, to, to lift up the poor and the marginalized. These are all how we get that kingdom vision inside of us, to think God's thoughts after him, as one writer put it. So what happens when you spend time with Jesus in scripture and in prayer and you open yourself up to the life of the spirit in prayer. That's what does the changing work in you. There's your part, but the lion's share of the work the spirit is doing in your life in ways that you aren't even aware of. And the thing about all that is we don't just do it for ourselves. We do it so that we can go out into the world and be his image out in that space. If you were a disciple, the whole point of your formation is to go out and do what your rabbi did. To carry his message into the world. And that's why the very last thing that Jesus says to his disciples is go and make disciples of all nations. Go, carry this kingdom vision out into the world and, and, and teach them to obey everything that I have taught you, everything that I have commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And here is the ultimate disclaimer with that. You don't do this on your own effort. I am going to be with you until the end of this age. It's Jesus' way of saying, go. You are ready. You are ready to do what I do to carry out this vision into the world. 
2,000 years later, the invitation from Jesus hasn't changed. Follow me. Learn my ways. Apprentice yourself to me. Learn my way of life. Then go out and carry it out. Be part of the world being made new. At this point in Mark's gospel, all that Jesus has promised is that he's going to make them something more than they currently are. And this promise comes at a cost. Soon they're going to find out why. Jesus is going to say, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. But you notice that the call is for anyone, whoever wants to be my disciple. It is not just for the elite, not just for the best. And for these men, denying themselves and taking up their cross was something quite literal. It meant leaving the familiar behind, leaving the comfortable behind to follow Jesus. But that's always how it is, right? I mean, imagine how different your life would be if you never left home. I mean, it's familiar, right? You, but you grow in the challenging seasons. You, you grow when you are away from what you know. You grow when you're always just a little bit over your head or maybe a lot over your head. That's why there is a greater cost of non-discipleship you get to miss out on the life that Jesus promises. If you want to be Jesus' disciple, you're going to need to organize your life around three things. Being with him, being shaped like him, so that you can go out and do the things that he does in the world. Jesus' call for his disciples was never to settle for the world as it is, but to be transformed by the kingdom that is to come. And you may not have to abandon your business like Andrew and Peter. You may not have to abandon your family like James and John. But you're going to need to leave something behind if you're going to apprentice your life to Jesus. What is that thing for you? What are you going to drop that you can no longer hold to follow Jesus into the place that he is calling you? And I don't know what your call may be. There are as many different ones as there are people in this room. I don't know whether or not you are the elite or you didn't make the cut. But if it's Jesus who is making the call, first and foremost, it is a call to himself. And what you will gain is far, far greater than what you will lose in the process. Like the first disciples, you don't even have to have answers about how all those changes are going to work out. You don't need to know where you're going or your ability to cope with the losses and the challenges that come along the way. You don't even have to have faith in yourself. You just need to have faith in the one who calls you, the one who believes in you, and the one who loves you way too much to leave you alone. Amen.